You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist or are better explanations out there? We are now on episode 50 and I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archaeology. And for the first time, we are live as a celebration for our 50th uh, episode. This recording is live stream. So if you're listening back in the catalog, don't be sad. There will come other opportunities in the future and it will be, of course, able, you will be able to see the um, video version of this over at YouTube as usual. But what will we talk about today? Well, I'm glad that you asked. We will, well, we will uh, talk about an episode from the latest season of uh, Ancient Aliens uh, titled The Power of the Obelisk. As the title well implies, this will be a full-on episode about obelisks. I will take you through its history and its usage, and in the end, I will teach you how you can make your own. And for those who are watching this live, I just want to say, if you have questions, save those to the end of the stream, because there you will have the opportunity to, to ask this. Uh, these. And if you are a patron or member of the Archaeological Podcast Network, your questions will get a little bit of, um, well, they will jump up in the queue. But I think everybody that want to ask a question will have the opportunity to do so. But before we start, remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you can also find my contact info if you notice any mistakes. And I also want to give a huge thank you to Elizabeth for your support for the show. And one quick thing before we start, take up your phone. This will be super cool. I want you to open Apple Podcast or a preferred podcast app and type in Digging Up Ancient Aliens. Now you leave a five-star rating and write something nice. I will wait. I should have had some elevator music or something for this part. But now that we're finished with our preparation, we will start to dig into the episode. So we are back in Egypt. While the pyramids will make a quick guest appearance, they will not be our primary focus. As previously mentioned, we will deal with the obelisk, a stone pillar that, uh, well, could be described like uh, something like this. The Egyptian obelisk is one of the most unique pieces of architecture in ancient Egypt. Every obelisk you look at, it is a perfect mathematical equation Geometrically perfect, physics-wise perfect. They were always made of granite and they were four-sided and towered upwards 
and eventually ended in this perfect well, following the pyramids, the obelisk might be um, the one thing that most people associate with ancient Egypt. And let's deal a little bit with the name for the obelisk. Not that it's really essential here, but it's a little bit of a fun trivia knowledge. Now, the word obelisk don't really originate from Egypt. No, it's actually from Greek. When the Greeks traveled from uh, traveled to ancient Egypt, they saw these giant monuments and they might have been a little bit um, hungry because they used the word for spit as one might use when you're barbecue. So giant kebab spit there. But the first time the obelisk were referred to as uh, needles was by the Arabic physician and historian Ibn Latif Baghdadi. And the Egyptian called these monuments for Tekken and are associated with the sign O25 in the Gardeners sign list. Interestingly, the word Tekken has the exact same spelling and means uh, beating a drum or musician. Now, the origin of the obelisk is a little bit murky. And the earliest record of them being used is uh, way back in the in the fourth dynasty. And the obelisks had a well, they have this square base, and then it ends up with the um, isosceles at the top. And during this time, the obelisk seemed to have been a mortuary monument in the earliest period of Egypt. I just want to move the camera a little bit there. Nice. It will be great <laughs> when it's edited out of the final episode. However, during the fifth dynasty, the obelisk started to change into something else. It becomes more like, um, like the ones we know from later eras. These were modest affair, not maybe more than three meters tall, but, um, they are now starting to be used as monolith. Unfortunately, none of these early obelisks have been preserved to our days. And from the records we do have preserved about, and they seem to have been connected to the pharaoh, meant to create some sort of connection between the king's ka, uh, your spiritual double and essence, and the sun god Ra. And even if they had now started to get a more evolved meaning, the primary function was still as a, a grave marker. And worth mentioning here is that during the fifth uh, dynasty, around sixth, six um, pharaohs seem to have built temples dedicated to the sun god Ra. And the shape of these temples closely resemble the layout of a pyramid complex. It starts with a valley temple, and have a causeway that bring you up to the temple courtyard. While most temples of ancient Egypt were enclosed, the sun temple were not, and the altar was out in the open air, and it had this obelisk-shaped construction out in the courtyard. Now, these seem to have been a bit taller, maybe three stories high, and we know that about six of these temples were built, but only two have been located, and the Temple of Nesoro and the Temple of Userkaf, with the, the Temple of Nesoro being the one that kind of have been, well, less <laughs> destroyed throughout the millennium. And yeah, both of them are heavily 
damaged, while this version of the Egyptian temple was only briefly constructed during the 5th dynasty. This design would get a surprising, uh, a surprising renaissance much, much later. The open-air temples with this form would be constructed almost a thousand years later for an extremely short period of time. And this was during the reign of Amenhotep IV, maybe better known as Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh. And it was meant, uh, and he did resurrect this temple design for his temples to Aten, the monotheistic god that he instituted. So let's talk a little bit closer about the different details on the obelisks. And on top of it, we see this famous pyramid shape on there. And it's thought that this shape is not solely for aesthetic reasons, but thought to represent the Benben, a common symbol within the Egyptian mythology. And if we listen to the ancient alien people, they will explain the meaning of the symbol, something like this. The pyramid-shaped stone on top of each obelisk, called the Benben stone, was a design rooted in Egyptian mythology. The Benben was a vehicle which Adam, the god of all creation, used to travel back and forth between the heavens and earth. We think of the Benben as a craft because it is believed to have come from the stars. And if you're into Egyptian mythology and history, this account might leave you uh, a little bit confused. The Benben stone is, in Egyptian mythology, the first piece of land that rose from the primordial waters and became the place from where Aten, in most cases, created the world. However, Egyptian religion was not some sort of uh, formalized or standardized uh, religion as Christianity or Islam, Judaism, or any other religion today. The, the creation stories would actually differ depending on your city because they wanted to promote their patron deity. So while the mound was associated with Atum or Ra in Heliopolis, the Sun City, this would not be the case in, for example, Memphis. Other gods were more important there. So if you ask the local Memphian on the street, they would claim that the mound was first inhabited by Tatenen. And the idea that the Benben would be an outerworldly object is prevalent in pseudo-scientific circles. As far as I've been able to track this claim down, it seemed to originate with the um, ancient alien proponent uh, Robert Bawal. To Bawal's credit, he did not suggest in his text actually that the Ben-Ben was a spaceship. Robert suggests it was a meteorite. With the Temple of Ra in Heliopolis, this supposed to have been well, within the temple of Ra in, in Heliopolis, there's supposed to have been a Bamban stone that was the original uh, primordial mound. It's, of course, been lost to history. But Bawal suggests that this, that this would have been a meteorite. While it's, of course, plausible that a meteorite might have been set up as a place of worship, there's not really enough evidence that it was so. We have also covered, well, quite recently, 
that, or as we mentioned just recently, each city wanted to claim the primordial mound as their own. So I don't argue that the meteoric iron was unimportant in ancient Egypt, as we discussed in episode 43, Aliens and Heavy Metallurgy. Meteoric iron was used in Egyptian iron work, and it could have, of course, have been on display in the temple as a claim to a Benben stone. But the evidence for it is scant and uh, a bit stretching at best. But it does not make much sense that the Benben would be from space if we look at the mythological records. The, the creation story of ancient Egypt draws inspiration from uh, the overflowing of the Nile, as we see with you know, the elements of primordial water and the mound rising up from it. So to sum up, the Ben-Ben is not an Egyptian description of a spaceship, but that's a more a modern reimagination of the mythology. And it seemed to be based on misreading some proponents of ancient alien theorists' actual claims. So they seem to, well, distort the truth and each other's claims uh, a little bit there. Now, coming up after the break, where do you find the most obelisks and how can you create one yourself? I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show for as little as 250 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for. You will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. Welcome back to our exploration of the obelisks. So where in the world do you find the most obelisks? Are you looking at the chats? Nobody is shouting at me. So if you are guessing Rome, I definitely want you on my bar trivia team because uh, it is correct. While in Rome, you can go around and find 13 obelisks and the Romans made sure or surely did like to use them as decorations in the Hippodrome. We will get to how you move these giant monoliths in a bit uh, later in this episode. I want to shift back a little bit uh, and look at the meaning of the obelisk that we can see today. As we discussed in an early episode, the purpose and use of the obelisk was um, a mortuary object. However, did 
this practice stay the same if you look at those that we still have preserved and scattered around the globe? And if you listen to the ancient alien crowd, the meaning of the obelisk is a bit like uh, the following. Most hieroglyphs that are on the obelisks are always the king asking the gods to be there for him on his journey through the afterlife so they can arrive to the afterlife and live for immortality. And the top was always dedicated to the sun god Ra, one of the most powerful gods in ancient Egypt. So let's go back and repeat the previous question about where we find the most obelisks and change it a little bit to where would we find the most obelisks in ancient Egypt? Where would that be? And in this case, the answer would be the city of uh, Innu, maybe better known as um, by its Hellenistic name, Heliopolis. And the obelisks we see today are from the Middle Kingdom and to some extent the New Kingdom. The oldest obelisks in this new form that we still see around today is from Cesarotis I, who reigned between 1908 to 1875 BCE. It's one of the few that actually stands in its original location, in this case in Heliopolis. So you can still see where it would have stood back in uh, Cesarotis uh, days. But, um, well, nothing is really left of the temple instead. But as you can guess from the location, the obelisks in the New Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom were not really mortuary commemoration, but more for bragging. The Egyptian temples were basically, from the start already, giant propaganda billboards. And with the obelisks, you got some more room to write your, well, uh, achievements on and brag a little bit because this was not easy stuff to put up. So on the obelisk, sensors write uh, the regular stuff, how he is the son Horus and all the other gods, and he is the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, etc. But we actually learned that, actually learned when he did erect this obelisk, toward the end of the text is written, the first occasion of Jubilee, he made it to live forever. So Jubilee, in this case, refers to... Um, his Hebfest, the rejuvenation ritual that was performed by tradition around the 30th year of the Pharaoh's reign. And so we know that the obelisk was erected in uh, about 1878 CE. And I have the full text translation from Sensoris, uh, the first obelisk in Heliopolis on the webpage, if you want to read the full extent. And there's also publications on it if you want to le learn more about this. And Sensoris apparently didn't get a memo of what's supposed to be on the obelisk, but um, he could just be an outlier. Sensoris put up another monument that was more like a giant stele and um, an obelisk basically with a rounded top. And it's quite an unconventional monument, so let's look at what some other obelisks actually say. So let's look at another example from Thutmothus III and uh, the obelisk that he erected that's now found in Rome that's called the Laternan Obelisk. And the Laternan Obelisk was 
first placed in Karnak, but in 357 CE, it was actually moved to Rome, where it would decorate the Spina within Circus Maximus. And today you find it outside the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. If you start reading at the top of the Pyramidion or the Benben Stone, we can read the following passage on the west side. Tothmeth the Third, received by Amen Ra, Amen Tu, the good god, Raman Kefir, giver of life like the sun, immortal. Tothmeth the Third, kneeling to Amen Ra, seated on a throne. The king Raman Kefir, son of the sun, Tothmeth the Third, like the sun, immortal, gives wine. The Harem Aku, the living son, the strong bull, crowned by truth, Raman Kefir, who adores the splendor of Amun in Thebes. Amun welcomes him in his heart, dilates at the memories of his son, increasing his kingdom as he wishes. He gives stability and cycles to his lord, making millions of festivals of thirty years, the son of the sun, Tothmeth III, uniting existence, giver of life. Again, not really asking the gods for eternal life there. And, I mean, he's more or less bragging on how good he is and how he will, you know, be celebrated for his achievements for eternity. It does not improve if we read what's written on the different sides either. Most of it just Tothmose bragging about various things he has achieved. One thing I find a little heartwarming here is the message that was uh, carved at a later stage by Tothmose's the, the, the third. Now, his majesty completed the very great soul obelisk from what his ancestor, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Menkefere Tutmosis III, brought. After his majesty found this obelisk, having lain for a total of 35 years on its side in the possession of the craftsmen on the south side of Karnak. So it seems if the project had been halted for one reason or another, this also gives us some insight to um, how the Egyptians actually constructed the obelisk. And we will return to exactly how they did this in a little bit. For now, let's turn our attention towards another obelisk and see if we can find this elusive idea about the ancient alien claim about this monument. So let's look at Ramses II or Ramses the Great. One of the more maybe famous pharaoh who ended up reigning until he was in his 90s, actually. And if you have seen the movie Prince of Egypt, this is the same pharaoh there. And it said that Ramses the Great had about a hundred children. And he also have a less flattering nicknames among Egyptologists. There is among those he is called the Great Schislers. He had bit of a he had a bit of a habit of chiseling out other pharaohs' names and replacing the cartouche with his own. But on the Luxor obelisk now found in Paris, we can read, for example, that uh, the kingly Horus, strong bull, son of Thun, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the lord of diadems 
Who protects and chastises the nation, son of the sun, Ramsesu Mariamen, king, warlike, who has acted with his own hands in the face of the whole earth, the lord of the two lands. And this is basically the standard, the standard inscription on the obelisk that we find during the Middle and New Kingdom. Remember, the one in the Old Kingdom were mortuary stellas, but they did not really, as far as we know at least, had any inscription. So they obviously chained from mortuary markers, and that again might have not had inscriptions to large, giant propaganda poles. While the goal, in a sense, was to achieve immortality, this was not the primary objective of the text themselves. The main purpose was propaganda. So when you read the text, you would understand how great the pharaoh was, how much he achieved, and how lucky you were to have this god-king uh, ruling you. But they seem to um, complement the temple waters. Again, they are heavy on the propaganda. That's why you see the Egyptian temple with these giant uh, walls with all this depiction. You usually have the pharaohs smiting a couple of enemies and all of that. And it's good to remember that both faith and propaganda can be mixed together. And if you're here to listen to me talk about obelisks, I think you um, might wonder how the ancient Egyptians created these monoliths. And I won't keep you waiting any longer for that. When alternative historian and alien conspiracy believers talk about the construction of Egyptian monuments, we often hear claims that go something like this. This is not the work of primitive people who have copper chisels. We often hear this claim that copper chisel can't be used to dress granite stone and this statement is never followed up with any sort of evidence or test for this. Uh, an interesting tidbit is that when people have tried to see if it's possible to use copper tool, the answer is that copper tools do work. For example, one experimental stonemason named uh, Mikkel Restoin shows that getting a smooth granite surface with nothing more than couple chisels and a grindstone to remove the tool marks is fully possible. Restorin has even developed a chisel technique that makes the chisel work longer and doesn't make the edge to go dull as fast. So this also fits quite well with the ancient Egyptians depiction of stone workers. For example, in the Mastaba of Kaimrehu, we can see a relief of working workers creating his car statue using again, what seems like copper chisel. In the picture, it even looks like this chisel have wooden handles. And this is combined with, well, the many copper chisel that we do find. So it's pretty clear that copper chisel was a method that they did use in their stone masonry. One method does not mean that it's the only method, though. An experimental archaeologist, Dennis Stocks, has made a good case for the ancient Egyptians using stone tools in the Egyptian stonework. The issue with copper tools is that it Copper is a quite soft, soft metal. And there's questions if you can really get 
these very sharp, fine edges on granite stone that we see in these hieroglyph carvings. And stocks have suggested that they might have used stone chisels to get these very lovely edges by utilizing these stone chisels. The idea is that you can get these sharp edges. And it seems in tests as this is very plausible. So he has created stone chisels out of flint, obsidian, and other stones, and uh, had stonemason copy ancient Egyptian art. And they actually managed to do very close copies of these artwork, meaning that if you would be very well practiced with these tools, you would get exact copies. And this experiment has also been replicated in Andean archaeology by, for example, Protzen and Natsir, who used tools out of flint, obsidian, and other stone stones to replicate the stonework of Pumapunco, located in modern Peru. And this is an excellent example on how we, with a little bit of ingenuity, can discover alternative methods that fit within the era's technology. With all this in mind, let's discard discard the idea that the ancient Egyptians were primitive, because that's not really a word that we use in archaeology. That's something that, you know, the Graham Hancocks and the Giorgio Suskalos of the alternative history sphere want to lay on us, but it's mostly them who uh, really can't figure stuff out. No, the ancient Egyptians were not primitive, and you can very well dress stone with copper chisels and if you need to do very fine artwork, well, then you can use flint tools instead. So with a few misconceptions regarding Egyptian stonework out of our way, let's move on to how would we create an obelisk? Do you remember the first quote that we heard in the first, at the top of the episode, that the obelisks are always made out of granite? And let me address this, or maybe dress this, claim. While most obelisks are granite, there are also those who are actually created from sandstone and other rocks. It's just a little disclaimer there. I couldn't really stop myself from pointing this out. For now, let's shift back to the granite obelisks, the one that we find most places, especially in Rome. Almost all were quarried in Aswan, a location uh, in the south of Egypt, Unfortunately, the ancient Egyptians did not leave a detailed written record behind how they created this monument. But we can piece different things together, thanks to, for example, the unfinished obelisk that we still find in the Aswan quarry, uh, and the scarce, scarce written sources that we do have, and of course the archaeological record. There's also new research going on, giving us additional information how they could have acquired these giant stones. So first of all, if you want to make one yourself, you or your foreman would go out in the quarry and find a nice large base. You need uh, 30 feet, maybe even more, that um, don't have any signs of cracks or hidden flaws. And most likely you need to excavate a little bit just to make sure that the rock beneath isn't decent, does not contain hidden flaws either. But when you find a location that seems to be good, promising, 
then you start to mark the obelisk out. And when the and then the workers would start to work, starting to pound out the pillar out of the bedrock. Well, you did not use copper chisel for this part of the process. No, instead you use a dolerite ball. And dolerite is a stone that's even harder than granite. And you pick it up and then you just drop it down. And you do that over and over and over, slowly shipping away flakes of mineral and stone from the rock. And this is a repetitive and slow task. And it must have taken quite a toll on those who work there. You know, fine dust and other particles would have filled the trench when you get that deep. And, you know, you would bring it down in your lungs, you would probably get the uh, first responder issues and things like that. We we know that these dolerite balls were extra used because we have found a large number of them in the quarries in situ. So we know that they use these dolerite balls to pound out the, the obelisk from the bedrock. And while the pounding the dolerite is a viable explanation by itself. Recent research indicated that ancient Egyptians actually used more technology than just this. And in a 2014 paper, Tom Heldahl and Per Storemyr suggest that the Egyptians utilize fire in the quarries. Using fire to mine or excavate stone and mineral have been used in different locations throughout history. And Egyptologists have reported signs of fire in the quarries since the early 1900s. Egyptologists have reported, uh, for example, Reginald Engelbach, for example, mentioned that in 1920s, he found so much burnt granite that he could just go around and pick it up anywhere in the quarry. So by applying heat, you weaken the strength of the granite. The drawback is that you, you kind of have to be careful and pay close attention to the stone's porosity, structure, and keep track of micro cracks. So when the controlled fire have burned out, then you can start pound the granite with your dolerite balls again. Again, you still need to use those, but uh, you have a bit of a lighter work ahead of you. On the unfinished obelisk in Asman, we can see the, still the marks of the dolerite pounders. They create these giant grooves in the stone. And they came from just throwing the ball against the stone over and over again, and then adding a fire, and then you repeat that until the obelisk come loose. And if you look at different quarries around Egypt, Storemyr and Heldal have been able to different three methods that they seem to have used for quarrying granite. As we just discussed, fire and pounding is one of them and then you can also create parallel flake with the uh, with the help of spalling and of course they also seem to have been using pre-existent cracks to their advantage when quarrying so they might find a nice line that they just work from when breaking off the stone from there however teeth method require workers with more skills but on the other hand more skills mean less uh, a smaller workforce so usually when this is presented the idea is that those working with the dolerite balls are prisoners or slaves it's not voluntary labor due to you know the health hazards but with this new information it seems as they most likely were quite skilled laborers 
maybe a bit more attractive on the job market, probably well paid for that. But of course, they got health hazards instead. But in this era, what wasn't really a health hazard <laughs> to some extent, uh, it's unknown exactly how long it took on average to create one Obelix, but, but we have one written account that actually gives us estimate. Hatsetsup wrote on the base on her obelisk that she quarried. Um, My Majesty ordered them to be in made in year 15. And this is year 15 of Hatsetsup's rule. The second month of winter on the first day until year 16, fourth month, last day when they were finished and the work lasted seven months since the arrangements in the mountains were made. So according to Hatshepsut herself, it took seven months to create two obelisks. Hatshepsut didn't really hold back and she talked about these uh, large pylons in several places. So it seems as you could do this in less than a year, but she might have added some extra money to it. But, but Hatshepsut is quite an interesting figure in history, and she seemed to have enswayed a lot of power. And uh, But yeah, we are not sure if this is the average, but uh, since she bragged about it, maybe it was a little bit more special due to that. After the break, how did the ancient Egyptian move these giant needles? Welcome back. Now that we know how the obelisk were quarried, what's written on them and their history, I want to get into how they were moved. Many of these are not small things. They are in fact very large and it's a fair question to ask how this was achieved. Some explanations are more possible and then we have, well, suggestions like this. We have some references in ancient Egyptian texts that also speak of some of these obelisks being levitated. And the way that worked is that a magical white powder had to be strewn across the stones and then water was added and through some quote unquote magical incantations, then those rocks lifted themselves and they could levitate into place. I'll get into where this claim originates since this story is fascinating. This is also an excellent example of the importance of source criticism. And I will start how we mainstream archaeologists explain how ancient Egyptians move these giant monuments. First, you need to get the quarried obelisk out of the hole. And as far as I've been able to get, we're not entirely sure how it was done, but it seems to have been possible using ropes, levers, all of that. But they can also have used similar technology as the construction worker Wally Wallington, who raised blocks weighing something like 9,000 kilos on his own with only sticks and gravity. But the obelisk was, when it was out of the hole, uh, later dragged down to the water, water when it was ready for transportation. And the workers seemed to have prepped the way down with fires and again the pounders to create a smooth 
surface where you could easier drag the stone downhill to the water. And they most likely used sleds, as we see in uh, Jehutotes tomb. Depicted on the wall, we can see how in this tomb, we can see how several workmen move a giant statue on a sled, pouring some sort of liquid out in front of it to decrease friction. And it could be water, it could be oil, but something to water just seems to work just fine. But we now know, um, we know that the obelisks were loaded onto barges at least and then sent down the Nile. And since the Nile always flow north, they barely had to use sails. The, the current would be enough to move the pillars up the river. This is also depicted in reliefs in Egypt. And the earliest depicted on using bo boats to move large stone objects is actually already in the 5th dynasty. And we find a depiction in King Una's Causeway. In that depiction, we see large pillars uh, that's being transported by boat. We also know that it's heading north since the sails aren't up. And that's an excellent way to actually to see what direction a ship is traveling in Egyptian art. If the sails are up, they are using the southbound winds heading to upper Egypt. If the sails are down, they go by the current towards lower Egypt to the north. And we don't only have King Una's causeway, Hatshepsut, again, details on how the bows were constructed and used uh, on a relief in her temple. And she wrote how she got sycamore trees from the whole land to build a ship to transport these giant obelisks to Karnak. Then it details how the soldiers and the sailors that was needed for this uh, trip were conscripted and how everybody was celebrating the arrival of this giant obelisk when they arrived at Karnak. Something that seemed to be forgotten in discussions often uh, in these reliefs are that both the obelisk and the stone object in on King Una's uh, causeway, they sit on sleds even while they are on the boat. And as I mentioned, we see this in other places too. The stone blocks were moved by boat on the Nile is also corroborated by other officials within Egyptian society, going all the way back to the fourth dynasty and the construction of Khufu's pyramid as described in the diary of Merer. And there are mention of the construction of the obelisks in the mortuary biography of Innis, an architect that served during Amenhotep I and Thutmose I, and Hatshepsut, a favorite official and possible lover, Senmut, also talk about the construction of the obelisks. None of these texts, however, mention that they used any sort of superpower, supernatural power to move them just seeming manpower cunning and a lot a lot of resources and in later periods we have the Ptolemaic dynasty who started to move obelisks from Heliopolis and Karnak to Alexandria where they resided because they were 
part of this um, Hellenistic uh, rule. And of course, they want to stay in Alexandria. That was a very Hellenistic city. And then we have the Romans who thought the obelisk would look super rad in their hippodromes and start to move them across the Mediterranean to Rome and other places. And while Roman had access to ropes, pulleys and other technology, they, they were not really dabbling in modern machinery. At the best, they most likely just put back, uh, cut back a bit of the manpower that you needed to move these uh, giant, giant pylons. But again, with the technology to the Romans around year zero, they managed to move these from Alexandria and other places in Egypt all the way up to Rome to uh, modern Turkey and all of that. So it wasn't a small project, but they managed to do it without modern technology or supernatural powers and aliens. We also have accounts of when, uh, when in the 1500s, again, back in Rome, when uh, they had moved this obelisk and then they had, you know, stood around for quite some time and started to topple over, left neglected, neglected, and they started to find these obelisks in the old hippodrome and decided, well, time to put them up again. So uh, we have the picture on how the Italians in the 1500 moved and lifted these without, again, modern machinery, only with ropes, pulleys. Again, this is way before the steam engines, modern machinery, but nobody is claiming that the Romans or later Italians would require alien assistance to do this because that would be silly. The ancient Egyptians just did it with a little bit less of technology, not that less, but again, they had a lot of manpower that they could utilize or maybe even animals. And these monuments were well quite a shame, a shame as to move for sure, but that's why the pharaohs talk about them in such high esteem. That's why Cleopatra or Hatshepsut, I'm sorry, I started to think about Cleopatra's needle in New York there. But, but Hatshepsut and Ramses, Tutmosis, all of those, they are bragging about erecting this because it was a demonstration of power of their, about their, um, how they had all these resources that they really were these god kings that could make these projects happen. They were meant to display their power and wealth. And again, weaving into uh, the religion of ancient Egypt. And moving this giant monolith is achievement even in our days. Both the New York obelisk and the London obelisk were transported with some difficult from Egypt. Uh, the London one was even basically pirated. So when they moved it, they put it on a boat, kind of shaped like a cigar and dragged it after their ship and they went into a storm and the obelisk got loose and then just floated around until some others picked it up and decided it was them and then started to try to ransom it to the British people. But um, they thought that it was too much and what would they do with the obelisk? And then they managed to haggle the price down a little bit. But since it was uh, found at sea, you know, the law of the sea was applying there. But um, the one in New York, also known as Cleopatra's Needle, took uh, Henry Gorringe about a year to transport from Egypt to New York. And this endeavor is quite a harrowing tale that uh, would actually be a quite 
good movie, to be honest. While it was difficult, Goringa required far less manpower than Egyptians and had a bit of a smaller budget to work with, but he had access to steam engines and things like that. But again, it wasn't a quick and easy thing to do, but possible with the technology of the day, making it just a little bit more simpler than, you know, conscripting a lot of people to solve this. Now, one mystery, and there is a mystery here, actually, that's not entirely sure solved, as far as I know, is how the Egyptian actually got the obelisk up on the pedestal. And worth mentioning here that there's nothing else than gravity that hold, did hold this Egyptian monolith up. It was just gravity and the weight of the obelisk that kept it upright. But as things look like, it's most likely that they first built a mound where they dragged up the monolith on top on and then just let it slide down on the other end on top of the pedestal. And there's actually a rumor surviving to our day where it's claimed that Ramses II, again, Ramses the Great, the one with a hundred kids or so, actually tied one of his kids on top of the obelisk to ensure that the workmen were extra, extra careful when they did put up the obelisk. I'm not really sure if he was very, um, what should we call it, very... I mean, he had 100 kids, so maybe he had one to spare there. But everything else we have discussed, we don't need, as I said, with everything else, we don't need modern technology to or aliens uh, for the Egyptians to actually do this. Just because we have not solved how they did it yet or how they did it exactly, it's just that we haven't been, have uh, done this for a long time and we don't really have to do it. I th- I'm sure if we got the manpower, the finances like uh, ancient Egyptian pharaoh, I think we will be able to figure out quite quickly, to be honest. But until archaeology get those type of resources, I think we will have to use uh, our imagination a little bit longer. But as I said, everything is plausible. But what's not plausible is really the alien part, because you need to introduce a lot of other things like surviving uh, interstellar galactic travel. That's not, we're not sure if human even can do that, but even then they come here trying to erect a few stone monuments. I think it's a lot of work for very little reward. And on that note, I want to discuss where Sukalos got the claim about the magic powder that we heard. It is not, as you might suspect, from any records in ancient Egypt, but from a 1999 book by Lawrence Gardner titled Genesis of the Grail Kings. And Gardner is the origin of the claim and seemed to have created this narrative by misquoting the book uh, Inscription of Sinai, Volume 2, and researchers in Sinai. Lawrence uh, claims this book mentioned a substance that's called mufkust or mufkust. Uh, this is supposed to be some sort of monoatomic gold that should be a warning bell that goes off uh, in some sort of white powder form that has some sort of supernatural power. As I mentioned, this is just made up and mufkust uh, has no meaning in Egyptian language. I did reach out to an Egyptologist that just 
laughed. And when she had stopped laughed, she just pointed out that the said wouldn't be there in if it was a real Egyptian word. This does not stop, however, people from claiming this is real, referring to other sources like German scholar Karl Reichard Lepsius, who also never mentioned Mufkist in his writings. And these claims start, when you start to double check things, they fall apart so quickly. And I think that they use these old books because in 1999, when Lawrence Garner did write this, it was really hard to access these um, these books. They are still quite hard to find, but a lot easier. And luckily, they have been digitalized, and um, you find them. Some of them, at least, uh, available on archive.org, the um, online library that have a lot of open, old, open sourced material that you can go back and look at. It even have search function, making your research a lot lot easier and making the claims from uh, from Lawrence Garner and Giorgio Suclos and others a lot quicker to uh, disprove because well it's easy to check it up and also that's why they're becoming more and more vague in the earlier earlier books we often see them reference where they did find it we don't really see that in the writings anymore they started to become vague because most likely because they know that you can go and look it up if you give the listener too much details and they might see through see through the veil, so to say. So if you don't trust me, I gave you exactly where you can go and look this up. And if you want to look up um, Garnier, do so. I felt that that book was... I mean, a boring spin-off of Sitchin's Gold Digging Aliens and David Icke's uh, Monatomic Gold Reptilians, basically. On that note, I will uh, end episode 50. Next time, I will have a guest with me and we will talk about classical history. So make sure to tune in next time. Until then, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or even to your fellow trench dweller or to your friends, whatever. And for more information about me and the podcast, check out diggingupancientaliens.com. You will also find an extensive list of the sources and resources and some reading recommendations if you want to learn more about this subject. For those who are watching this live, this doesn't exist yet. You have to check back in a week when this episode release for uh, everybody, so to say. If you want to support the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash digging up ancient aliens, just like Elizabeth. Or if you want to get the most out of your buck, you can head over to archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com where you can get a ton of bonus content, Slack channels, and ad-free episode. And that membership covers every show in the network. So you get an incredible amount of content for your hard-earned money. And since it's Christmas time, we have a special offer just for you. Buy a yearly membership and get one for free. Head over to archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com and sign up as an annual member. You will then get a coupon to give to your friends or your family. And this offer is valid until the 31st December 2023. and only with the with yearly membership and if you want to contact me 
It can be done through most social media sites. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write that email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. Sandra Martelou created intro music and our outro is by the band called Trollscrew, who sings their song Tin Foil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support to read more information and sign up right there. 